Welcome to this episode of the Pokes Podcast, a timely look at the life of the Oklahoma State University College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Natalie Ambrose. On our podcast today, we will talk with Peter Exline, a philosophy graduate in 1969. He's known as the Philosopher King of Hollywood, whose life and career has overlapped with the likes of Michael Douglas and the famous Coen brothers. He served as an inspiration for multiple characters in the film The Big Lebowski from 1998. Today, we will hear about Peter's fascinating career and how he went from Stillwater to Hollywood and what's on everyone's mind. What's with that rug? Also, as a warning, this episode includes just a few words that would categorize it as PG-13. Peter, it's wonderful to have you with us on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be here. Wonderful. So today we would love to hear um, from you about a little bit about your life, how you got started, where you're from, uh, what led you to OSU and your time here. Well, tell us a little bit about your roots and where you're from. I grew up in Tulsa. It was a very uh, idealized uh, childhood in, in many ways. I did all the usual. I had the newspaper roots from uh, when I was 12. I, I had the uh, grocery store job when I was 16. and. Uh, when I was 18, I went to college. I started out in a small college in Florida, Wallace College. And after two years, I was 1A. And I was going to get drafted. My father had died in February. And my mind was filled with this uh, dull impression of dying before I was age 21 in a rice field in Vietnam. So in order to make sure I didn't get drafted, I transferred to Oklahoma State because their school started early in August or September. And then when I got the induction, I would just say, hey, I'm in school. And they would give me a deferment to finish that semester, which happened. And that's exactly what happened. So then after January, they changed all the requirements for the draft. And I got a deferment to finish college. So while I was at OSU, I was really upset and lonely. Uh, I missed all my friends in the other school, and I had to start all over again. And I got in with the lefties, all the lefties. And we started our own newspaper. We never took over any buildings, but we had our own newspaper, and we're against almost everything. And uh, we let the administration know how much uh, we were against everything. I went around and I sold advertising for the newspaper and then it was printed in Oklahoma City and I drove my Volkswagen to Oklahoma City and picked up the newspapers and brought it back to Stillwater. And that's what I most remember. It was a, a house that's not there anymore called the House of Seven Gables. And I lived there for a while in the, the, up the very top. And then my last year I lived in the very bottom in the basement. It's been torn down. You remember what street it was on? Well, there's Knobloch. Does Knobloch run north, south, or east, west? Um, it runs north, south. So it was uh, probably east of Knobloch. And the hideaway was a block away. And the hideaway has now moved to where the movie theater was. Yeah. That was a movie theater I saw 
Bonnie and Clyde. I waited in line to see Bonnie and Clyde in that movie theater. And uh, last time I was at OSU, that's become the, the hideaway. That's right across the street from the old fire station. It's all still there. Yeah, I remember the fire station very well in, the, in Knobloch Avenue because I crossed that a lot of times at the campus. Yeah. You studied philosophy during your bachelor's pursuit here at OSU. What made you choose philosophy? There was one man. Uh, he was somewhat charismatic and a very excellent instructor, and I became friends with him. And as I said, my father had just died, so I kind of wanted a father figure, and he felt that in. So I decided I'd become a philosophy don, and I, I majored in philosophy along with causing all the trouble I could by being a lefty. <laughs> but as soon as I graduated, I was in Vietnam by December. I was in Vietnam Christmas Day, and I, in Vietnam over a year. Wow. I spent two Christmases there. And this is a part of my life that I, I point to and say, you know, along with democracy and freedom, there comes a responsibility. I really didn't want to go to Vietnam. And my mother didn't want me to go to Vietnam. She wanted me to go to Canada. She said, I'll support you if you go to Canada. But I thought she was being naive that we were trying to stop communism. And I had read a lot and studied a lot, and I decided this was a good war. We were trying to support democracy in South Vietnam. So I allowed myself to be drafted. And within 24 hours of arriving in Vietnam, I realized we don't give a shit about these people in their lives. We're just uh, there for some political power play. And a lot of us were very upset about it and didn't want to be there. We were proud of being there, but the army wanted us there, the president wanted us there, so we went there. I remember one guy from Appalachia, his eyes were already red from the coal mines, he, he had no teeth, and he was like, I, I'm not proud to be here, but I want to be able to tell my grandchildren I, I, I fought. So there was a lot of that, and mostly we're trying not to get killed, and fulfill our duty and go home. Meanwhile, I was in combat, I earned the Combat Infantry's badge, I earned, earned the Bronze Star. Uh, we uh, were air mobile, which means we got on helicopters and flew into hot spots to meet uh, as the enemy. And I was always on the lead helicopter. I got an air medal for flying on 24, 25, 26 of these so-called uh, air combat missions. Wow. So I got out and I decided I had a girlfriend and she wanted to get married and move to New York. I spent two years there. I did different jobs. And then I decided working in the movie business would be a lot of fun. It took years, two or three years of application. But finally, I sat down with the chairman of the department, Haig Mnuchin. Now, Martin Scorsese studied under Haig and he dedicated Raging Bull to Haig. This was at NYU, right? At NYU. Yeah. And Hank, uh, I asked, you know, can I go back and get a second uh, bachelor's degree? No. Can I go in and do this? No. Can I do? <laughs> he said, here's, here's what you need to do. I just figured this out. Start your application now in January. You don't have to complete it until July. I have a sight and sound class that I teach in the summer. Take sight and sound and you can make $1,000. 
a variety of uh, one and a half minute movies, and then you'll have a creative reel that you can show. So I did that. I, I was working at NYU. I took a vacation. I took a leave of absence. I, I filled out six to eight weeks and I went to this class and I made these one and a half minute movies. And I did. I got in because of one of those movies. So now I got into NYU and I was just ecstatic. It was a cynical move by NYU. They usually let in 25 students. This year they let in 50. So they have enrollment money to help pay for the second and third years. Uh -huh. It was kind of a cynical move. And we figured that out. And we all went in and stored in the dean's office and protested. And this became an annual event. Every November, kids would figure out, wait a minute, we're just tuition. They just want our money. They're going to kick us out at the end of the semester. So it was an annual event. Meanwhile, I managed to get through it. I took over the film series and invited filmmakers down to USC to come and show their movies and to talk. The chairman of the department hated my guts. He thought I was uh, using the film program and inviting people to Hollywood so I could chat them up and get to know them and ask them for a job. So I'd have a job waiting when I graduated. This is far more cynical than I was. <laughs> I was just trying to preserve and make sure I didn't get kicked out of uh, NYU. Sure. And I can remember sitting in the office of the chairman one day, and the, the phone rang, and he, he picked up the phone, and he started speaking in the phone. It was Hungarian. He directed The Wild One, which was one of the first movies I'd ever seen in my life. Uh -huh. Marlon Brando, and he was talking on the phone, hello, yes, 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 hold on a minute. And he looked at me, he handed me the phone, he says, it's for you, it's Steven Spielberg. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, it wasn't Steven Spielberg. It was somebody on his staff. And they <laughs> wanted to show Close Encounters, and they wanted to square up the deal with me. And, of course, I was excited to get this movie. How old were you at this point? I'm pushing. I turned 30. Okay. I was 30 years old my first semester. And I feel terrible about being in college and being 30 years old. And I thought, this is so stupid and I'm spending all this money. And uh, my brother was like, what are you doing? What is this whim you have to go to Hollywood, work in Hollywood? Who do you think you are? That even terrified me more. So I had this mound of anxiety that I was just throwing away three years of my life and, you know, thousands of dollars to, to go to NYU. But I made friends, and one of them was Barry Sonnenfeld, and uh, he became a, a top cinematographer and has directed multiple movies. I got a job at Warner Brothers as a part-time reader, reading, they were essentially novels, not very many screenplays. It was galleys to books that were about to be published, and occasional screenplay sometimes, magazine articles. At that time, a lot of magazine articles were being optioned and made into movies. Saturday Night Fever was the most successful. It was a, an article called The Tribal Rights of Saturday Night about this incredible dancer in Queens, of all things. That became a huge hit with John Travolta. Yeah, it also has a cult following to this day. Really? Yeah, for sure. It's a remarkable movie. 
I used to teach it in um, my postmodernism section. Um, and I would use that as um, elements of postmodernism. It's a fascinating film. That's so cool that you reviewed the article that became the script. Well, it already been made in this a movie, and I saw the movie. I remember afterwards, we'd always go for coffee and talk, and there were six of us. Several of us were from Oklahoma State. One was a dancer, and the Joffrey and his wife was a school teacher, and then my wife and the the women were like, I'm so sick and tired of these coming of age stories about men. I wish there were coming of age stories about women. Well, the light should have gone off in my head and other people's head that there's a whole audience there of women who want to see what movies about women. Sure. And somebody should have sat down and written one. I remember seeing Lady Bird, which yes. ultimately won multiple Academy Awards, and it was a very personal story written and directed by this woman in an independent movie. And it was just stunning. It is a, it's a great story. It's a wonderful movie. And interestingly enough, my grandniece has a poster of that up on her uh, wall. And I asked her, why, why do you have Lady Bird on your wall? She said, well, it's a very similar story to me and my mom. I, I wanted to go to college out of state, and so did she. And my mom wanted me to go to college in state. So Jordan Exline won the war. She went to college in San Diego at the University of San Diego. And Jordan so, is <clears throat> I started reading and uh, I got a, a minor expense account. And I was meeting with magazine editors and magazine writers trying to beat the trends and find out what's coming up next. And then I got fired. Oh, no. And... You know, I just felt horrible. I spent all, all this time and money in film school. And uh, my first job, I get fired. But I had a friend at Warner Communications, way, way above Warner Pictures. Warner Pictures was just one of many subsidiaries. And I decided I have to go to L.A. Did you know at this time that this was your foot in the door, that this was the thing that would get you in? I thought it was, and I got fired. Oh, no. So he, he, he lined up seven courtesy interviews. So a courtesy interview is somebody who is willing to meet with you because you have a friend or you know somebody. They don't have a job, but they'll spend 15 minutes, and they'll talk to you. And then we, let's see what happens. So I started trying to get at least two more names from each of these courtesy interviews. Do you know anybody else I can meet? Do you know anybody else I can talk with? So I did this for three months. And one of the original people I met was Sherry Lansing, who was a VP at Columbia Pictures. And she really liked me. She was instrumental in me getting a job with a producer, Mace Newfield. Mace Newfield had been in the business 25 years. Yes. Yale grad, he was started out as a musician and then became a manager. Managed me a lot of these middle of the road musical acts for years, Catherine and Tennille, Neil Diamond and others. So he made a lot of money, but he was taking care of their lives, taking care of their careers, taking care of their business. And along the lines, he produced a movie, The Omen, which made a lot of money. A lot yeah, of money. Yeah, I remember. So, he had a lot of money in the bank, and he wanted to get out of the 
music business and into the movie business. So he set up this company and I started there first as a reader, then as a story editor, then as a vice president. And it was a very difficult time because uh, we couldn't get movies made. We had money. We even partnered with uh, Marvin Davis, who later bought 20th Century Fox. But we couldn't get um, the movies uh, made. So after five, four years, maybe five years, Mace let me go. And I started trying to set up projects on my own. I knew a lot of writers. I knew a lot of agents. I knew the game. But it turns out having Mace Newfield was a real big umbrella that shielded me from a lot of rain because people wanted to make a deals with him. They didn't want to make a deal with me. He, he was the one that had the credibility. And so if yeah, they trust he has 25 him, years of connections. Right. They trust him, then they trust you. And that's how you link up. So after six months, I was broke. And I started reading again. And I started reading for uh, freelance only for uh, HBO and then other companies. And I was still trying to set up projects. And then I started writing. And I set up uh, several magazine stories I sold to American Film, which uh, had no money, but I, again, gave me credits. But then the president of uh, HBO left and went to Michael Douglas. So I went to Michael Douglas. And Michael Douglas has a father who was very successful, and he was very successful. And this and is Kirk Douglas. He had a deal with Paramount, and he had independent money with the Empire. And we made three to five movies. But Michael likes to set up a company every three years and then cut all side ties and start all over again. And it's worked very well for him. And, and he did that again. The big movie that came out of that was uh, about medical students who would kill themselves and then bring themselves back. But I'd already left the company and the company had already wound down by that time. And uh, I was hired. I was in my 40s. I, I, it seemed like I was always starting over. I, I get a job and then, I, and then I didn't have a job and I get a job. So I saw an ad in Variety for American um, for studies at UCLA Extension. UCLA Extension is for grown-ups who have jobs, most of them, but they want to start a second career. They're in the movie business and they want to get a better job and they figure they could do that. A lot of people who thought they could write a screenplay and make a lot of money started teaching my class on how to write movie coverage, how to write script coverage. Did you know at this point that you were destined to go into like teaching and guiding other people? Or was this just an extra kind of side gig for you? For now, it's a B plan. It's plan B. If, if okay. Hollywood doesn't work out, I can do, build something in academia. So once again, I was teaching and working for Michael. And once again, Michael down, shut down the company. I'm out of work. And I thought, okay, now's a good time to actually pursue this. Well, two writers had sold a screenplay to Michael's company, Stone Bridge, for $600,000. And I'd written notes on it, how to improve it. Because that's what I was good at, that's my forte. And this was on their bulletin board, like the Bible of what to do to rewrite it. And it turns out they both were teaching screenwriting 
So I told him about UCLA and how happy I was and uh, blah, blah, blah. So I'd been unemployed about six months. December 31st, 1991 was the end of Stone Group, Stone Bridge. In September, I got a phone call from one of these guys. He's like, we have a class. There's 12 students in it. They keep coming to class, but the teacher's sick. He's in the hospital. And we want someone to come in and finish the class. He said, you know, it's writing coverage for what you, you've been teaching. And I, I said, get out of my way. I mean, what do you, which is what he wanted to hear. He didn't want to hear how much is it? How right. much work will it be? How much, uh, you know, do I get a parking pass? Will I have an office? He didn't <laughs> want any of that. It's just, I'll be there Monday. Get right. out of my way. You know you're coming into a committed group of students because they're coming to class and there's no instructor. Right. So he's ecstatic. That's what he wanted to hear. The class went well. The students liked me and gave me good evals. So the chairman came to me winter break and said, well, we'd like to continue uh, this relationship. And the guy's still in the hospital. And here's another class that he taught. And he gave me a syllabus for our class, and it was called the Communication in the Movie Studio. First of all, the only studio I worked with was Manhattan. That was more books than a movie studio. I didn't understand how a studio worked, and I didn't understand the class. I couldn't figure it out. So I got out my yellow pad, and I wrote down a syllabus for our class. The movie business, A to Z, from a writer coming up with the idea through marketing and distribution. And I gave this to the head of the department, Mark Davis. And I said, I don't understand this class. I don't know what he's teaching. But I know what I could teach, and I could teach this class. He looked at the syllabus, and he said, wow, I'd like to take that class. I would, too. So he hires me to teach this class. And it was a slow haul. The coverage class would uh, fill up, but this class had problems. For the first couple of years. And then in 1994, it kicked in. I had 12 students and they loved it and they gave me good evals. And then from then on, it was just like more and more students enrolled in it. I walked into a movie. I would come in with a writer and I wrote the movie. And then two weeks later, the agent would come in and talk about selling the project to the studio. And then two weeks later, the producer would come in, talk about producing. And then I tried to get an executive from the studio. And then a marketing executive would come down. Okay, here's what I have to do. I have to sell this movie to the public. And then one semester, for example, we did The Shape of Water. And this is an independent movie, Fox Searchlight. And I love the marketing exec. She'd come down before. And she says, so I've got to sell a movie to the public about a woman who falls in love with a fish. And I said that early on as a joke, and the whole class had cracked up, like, what a hilarious guy this is. But then it's like, hiss him. Yeah, that's what the movie's about. She, a woman who falls in love with a fish. So then she goes through the details. Then the, two weeks later, somebody comes in to tell, explain how they're going to distribute the movie. Distribution is what weekend, what theaters, how many theaters. So somebody for a movie will come in and say, we wanted every theater that showed uh, Garden State, independent movie, we want them to show our movie. 
And that's who we went after. So to me, this is just like a wonderful class and it's showing the kids, you know, there's more than writing and directing your own movies and being an auteur. There's a lot of jobs and a lot of them are creative. There's agenting, there's producing, there's marketing. There's a lot of jobs in Hollywood that are very interesting. It's so interesting that you were in kind of the early stages process with Shape of Water, because if I remember correctly, it won multiple Academy Awards in its year. Am I correct? Yeah. It was a gorgeous film. I remember seeing it. The color palette and the visuals of that film were stunning. And they kept saying it was made for 19 million. And I kept saying, that's got to be bullshit. But then it turns out uh, the director had a lot of people who liked him, and he called in a lot of favors. I had very good luck. I had incredible luck with the Academy Awards, starting with uh, Joel and Ethan. I asked them Owen Brothers. Out. Yes, so tell us about... We were in town shooting The Big Lebowski, and I'd seen Fargo. So, look, if you're going to be in town, why don't you come down and talk to the class? Okay. So they said, okay. So then... I had the good fortune of having them. And none of us, nobody thought this is going to win Best Picture. Nobody thought this is going to win Best Actor and Best uh, Film. Uh, I can't remember if it won Best Director. But I went to the set of uh, Lebowski when they were doing the sequence, the musical sequence with the dancing girls and uh, the Saddam lookalike who had the bowling shoes. And I said to Joel, when, when has this ever happened before? A guy writes a movie part for his wife, and then she wins for best actor, and he wins for best director. He said, last year. And he meant for Dead Man Walking. I said, Walking, Tim, yes. Tim, Tim didn't uh, win it for directing. Yeah, Susan Sarandon won it for best actress, but he didn't win. But he said, I never, I never dreamed of this in my entire career. I never wanted it. I never thought it would happen. It's like completely unimagined to me. So I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Joel and Ethan Cohen. I believe I read that they referred to you as Uncle Pete. Um, tell me a little bit about your relationship with them long before they wrote Fargo, long before The Big Lebowski, because you do serve as the inspiration for one of the iconic characters out of the Lebowski. So I really want to understand what's the friendship like between you and the Coen brothers that then infused itself into that film, The Big Lebowski. Two things I can think of. I was married. My second wife lived in New Jersey. And we go back Christmas to spend with her family. And Barry Sonnenfeld had, uh, for some reason, had a good reputation as an up-and-coming cinematographer, DP, director of photography. And he met us at the saloon. The saloon was a bar, restaurant, right across from Lincoln Center. I met Joel and Ethan, and Ethan would not talk to me. He was kind of shy and quiet. He would, he would whisper something in Joel's ear, and then Joel would say something. And Joel is a film student. He's a film school grad. And Ethan was a, a philosophy major from Princeton. He had worked at Macy's doing columns of numbers, a job that most people quit after two weeks or they just went mentally ill and left, fleeing the building, screaming. <laughs> and he'd held on to this job for years, which tells you something about Ethan. 
So then a friend had a birthday in Manhattan, and we flew back for the birthday, and Barry had Joel and Ethan over and me over for the Super Bowl. I locked Barry out of the TV room so that he, and I said something to him like, you know, I could go gay for you, Barry. Now, Joel and Ethan thought I was hilarious. They also thought I was very successful because I worked for a producer in Beverly Hills. So they called me the philosopher king of Hollywood, like the philosopher king of Plato and his musings about a perfect government. So all Barry did was unplug the TV, so we couldn't watch the Super Bowl. So we let him out of the bedroom. But that sealed it. Joel and Ethan decided, this guy's funny. He's okay. So I would see them. And they gave me the movie they were trying to finance, and they wanted Barry to shoot. And it was called Blood Simple. My wife actually read it and liked it very much and tried to do something with it. But nobody in Hollywood would go near it. And eventually they financed it and got it made. And they came to Hollywood to screen it and try to sell it. I would see them from time to time. I remember they came over, and, and they were both chain smokers. The house is just filled with smoke. And I was a chain smoker. And they just showed it to Rob Friedman at Warner Brothers, and he didn't want anything to do with it. And they were kind of depressed and down. And they were thinking, wow, we just wasted six, $800,000 of other people's money. Nobody, nobody wants this movie that we made. And it was a, a very edgy, dark movie. And it wasn't much of an independent movie market at the time. Today, it would be very clear, you know, this is not a Hollywood movie. Hollywood's not going to show this. Hollywood's not going to buy this. So it didn't fit the formula. It does not fit into anything that Hollywood is looking for. So and they were in town, and there's a FilmX movie festival at the, the New Art Film Theater in Santa Monica Boulevard. And I invite my boss, and I, I go to the screening. The movie screens, and this guy walks up to Joel and Ethan and says, hi, I'm Jim Jacks, and I work for a distribution company, and I'd like to buy your film. So we went to a Thai restaurant a half a block away and had a lunch, three, four o'clock luncheon to celebrate. And Jim Jacks was a, a military kid who was trying to get into Hollywood. So he was their picker. And one summer, he picked Risky Business to be the movie for Circle. Warner Brothers, an executive for Warner Brothers, called the company Circle and said, listen, we just want to give you a heads up here. You know, uh, Your guy has signed up to buy Risky Business from us, and we wanted to let you know our, our big movie is Cujo. And um, you know, he's making a big mistake. The, the movie, you know, this is Stephen King. It's a big A-list director, all our marketing Everything's going in. So the guys helped out. They said, oh, we're, we're, we're going to go with Jim. We believe in him. Well, Kojo was a total bomb and risky business with huge, huge success. Uh, so they were stuffing money into their wallets because of this guy's sensibility. They said, we want to start a distribution movie. Can you find movies for us to distribute? Well, the first movie he saw was Blood Simple. And he said to... Uh, them. I think these guys are brilliant. They've got lots of ideas. I think we should sign them to a three-picture deal. And the guys go, and 100%, they believed in Jim Jack. They said, yes, get the contracts. 
So, of course, Blood Simple was a total bomb. It grossed less than a million dollars in America, but it got $20 million in reviews. These guys are the next source of wells. These guys are brilliant all over the country. There's one bad review, and there's some guy in Boston named Hudson, not Hudsucker, but named, some funny name. They named a, a character after that guy later. But now they had a picture deal, three pictures, which Fox bought from them. So the completion was uh, Raising Arizona and I think the Miller's Crossing that they made for Fox. Then they were on their own, independent. And most of the movies since then have been independent. So I've had this kind of relationship with Joel and Ethan where they call me Uncle Pete. And I'm the philosopher king of Hollywood. This came via Barry Sonnenfeld. And I have uh, less of a friendship now than I did then. However, Ethan had leukemia in 2005, not leukemia, lymphoma. And I got lymphoma in 2016, so he called me and we talked and we started texting about the horrible chemotherapy treatments and everything else. But I have to correct you. This is a common mistake. My character is the Vietnam veteran, Walter, Walter Stuckel. The dude is based on Jeff Dow, and there's plenty of documentation. Now, this came about by a, a book that Trish wrote. Trish was married to Joel for quite a while. So she told the whole story, because when they were shooting Barton Fink, they're writing Barton Fink, and I invited them over to dinner. I was barbecuing. And I had some friends over, some married couples, and I started telling the story about my neighbors moving out and leaving a rug. And I went over and I stole the rug because I I lived in New York, and if you move out and you leave stuff behind, furniture, whatever, it means I don't want it, you can have it. People put furniture on the street, others pick it up. There's entire apartments with uh, furniture. Yeah, fair on game. On the streets in New York, in Manhattan. My car just was stolen. So I, I told this story about the rug, and I made the joke about how the rug tied the room together. And everybody thought that was the funniest joke they'd ever heard, that I had taken this rug and it tied my entire living room together. And then I started telling about my stolen car, and Joel and Ethan thought I was, think I'm very funny, and a lot of my friends think I'm very funny. And they would laugh, and they would laugh. As I went through this story, a friend of mine, I told him my car was stolen. He was a private. I was from Denton, Texas, North Dallas. He said, you'll never see your car again. Then my car shows up. It's impounded. I've got traffic tickets that I owe for parking. And we go in, we look at the car, and it's all beat up. And there's a bunch of garbage in the back, a lot of fast food wrappers, and an old basketball, and a hard rock San Francisco sweater. And again, looks like, you know, well, they, you know, it's obvious uh, they they stole your car. They're black. There's three of them. The guy in the back, a big guy, he ate all the food. I'm like, this is the worst detective work I've ever heard in my life. Oh, no. Are you serious? You're a private eye. And then, and then Lou reached inside and underneath the um, passenger seat, he finds this homework, math homework. Jake, J-A-I-K, Freeman. This is not a black kid. This is a Jewish kid. So Jake's like, you'll never find this kid. So I know one 14-year-old kid in, 
in Los Angeles. Seven million people live in Los Angeles. I know one 14-year-old. His name is Truman. And he's got a single dad and not home much. He hangs out at the convenience store three blocks away from my apartment where I get cigarettes, Diet Pepsi, sugar, and coffee. The, the four food groups of a bachelor in America. Yeah, for sure. I go down there, and sure enough, Truman's there with his skateboard. Hey, Truman, how you doing? Yeah, you know, hi. And I, I get myself, uh, Truman, do you hang out with Jake Freeman? And he literally backs up a step. So I know this guy, Jake Freeman, is a badass. If just his name, Truman is backing up a step. If he's, here's the guy's name. So he's like, no. And I get my stuff and I paint. I'm getting ready to go. I say, hey, Truman, what are you going to do? What are you going to school? Emerson. Emerson High School is like five blocks away. Junior high. So like five blocks away. So I go home and I go through the phone book and I'm calling all the Freemans in the neighborhood. Hi, I'm looking for the parents of Jake Freeman who goes to Emerson Junior High. The 11th phone call, yes. And then, hello, Mrs. Freeman. You know, my car was stolen. Your son Jake's homework was in the car. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's a bad boy. I want to come over and talk to you about this, blah, blah, blah. So, of course, I, I'm going to go see the family on a Friday night, and I take uh, Lou, Big Lou. Now, Big Lou's a big guy. He's six foot two, six foot three, weighs 300 pounds, former private eye, former Vietnam veteran. He's all intimidating. We go into the house, and I'm like, oh, my God, where am I? This is like a, a Raymond Chandler novel. In the living room, at the end of the living room is a fireplace. And by the fireplace, where most people would have chairs, there's a hospital bed, and there's a man in the hospital bed. He lives in the living room. Oh, my gosh. And he's got track lights, and there's a couch in front of him, and we go and sit on the couch. They rearrange all the lighting. So it's shining on us, like we're the criminals. I'm like, we, we didn't steal the car, man. Your son did. You're about to be interrogated. And, uh, I start telling the story. I hadn't noticed, but Lou had brought a briefcase. And I start telling the story, and I talk about the back of the car and all the fast food wrappers. And Lou brings out a baggie with a hamburger wrapper from Burger King. When I told this, Joel and Ethan almost fell down laughing so hard. Everybody at the dinner party is just laughing hysterically at Lou and his baggie. <laughs> for uh, a hamburger. And then out comes the homework, and he walks over and he cowers over, towers over Jake. He says, We got the homework, Jake. We know you stole the car. <laughs> and uh, I, so I finished the story, and Mrs. Freeman's like, Well, I can tell you, Jake has never been in your car, and he certainly did not steal your car. However, he did loan his math book to another student who never returned it. And he knows he might have taken the car. And if the police come, he will talk to them. So, of course, we've been stonewalled. She's talked to the lawyer. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for having us over. And we get in the car. We leave. And Lou's like, did you see what the old man was reading? I'm like, what? He said, the old man. Did you see what he was reading? I'm like, no. What was he reading? Screenplays. He was reading screenplays. So oh, my like, gosh. Okay, so 
I'd go home and I had film, Hollowell's Film Encyclopedia. I look up Freeman, all the names. And there's a Freeman Jr., something Freeman Jr. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He, he had of course. credit since 1939. His first uh, movie was Larceny Inc. with Edward G. Robinson. He wrote so-and-so as Eddie's bachelor father. He wrote The Man in the Glass Bone. So he's this Jewish writer and came to write screenplays, had a very successful career in Hollywood. Now he's very sick. He's, what, second, third, fourth marriage? And he's got a 14-year-old kid. I'm sure they're in the backyard tossing the football with each other. I just can't get past the phrase in my head just keeps coming up. What are the chances? Like we've seen so many screenplays that your life has influenced. And it's so cool to hear the actual stories that kind of made it into those screenplays, like it made it into the story. And then you end up teaching story analysis, like all of it just kind of comes full circle. And I just keep thinking, what are the chances? Like, how is this even reality? Well, the chances are if you have friends who are writers, the trans chances go up exponentially. Right. Right. Joel and Ethan in the Big Lebowski, they have a stolen car. They find the homework in the car. There's a joke, running joke about how this rug that was stolen from Lebowski tied the room together. So they took the stories of my life about my car being stolen and incorporated into their Raymond Chandler-esque comedy, The Big Lebowski. So the chances rise exponentially if you have a lot of friends who are screenwriters. They're going to rip you off. They're <laughs> going to take your stories and put them into a screenplay. But I do have to say, you were so kind to clarify that. Um, and I have read that Chris Dowd um, is a combination inspiration for the dude. But you, you truly are humble, Peter, because his life is your life and your life is his life, but you also were influenced for Walter. So really two characters bear your influence from your life in that film, which is so cool. I think our audience may not have known the distinction and where things came from. I'm so glad you cleared that up for us and told us kind of the texture behind everything. Well, I always have to clarify, I'm not the dude. <laughs> A lot of people think my sarcasm, my sense of humor, my laid back, it's got to be you, man. I'm like, no, man, it's not me, okay? I'm Walter, Walter Stuckel. And again, like I said, Trish wrote this book, The Making of the Big Lebowski. It was actually Detail Magazine took, excerpted the story about the dinner party in the Details Magazine. I look at Walter and I'm like, what on earth do I have in common with Walter? I can't see anything. But at one point in my life, I could not go 10 minutes without mentioning Vietnam. And I see that in Walter. Everything seems to relate to Vietnam to him. Yes. At one point, the dude is like, Walter, there's nothing about Vietnam in this kidnapping. He's always talking about that. But at one point, there's a deli in L.A. I used to have dinner with Joel and Ethan. They come to L.A. They shoot a commercial or something, and we'd meet and we'd have dinner. It was right after the Gulf War, and we had uh, bombed Iraq. The Gulf War, H.W. Bush. We'd bombed Iraq for six months and then attacked. Like 40,000 Iraqi soldiers had surrendered. 
So I felt kind of bad. And we were having dinner, and Joe, and Ethan was there with Buster, and I was like spooning food. He's holding Buster, and and uh, into Buster, and talking about guys. You've got to understand, it's a lot easier to fight a war in the desert than it is to fight a war in triple canopy jungle. Right. And Joe started laughing so hard. I thought. We're going to have to call an ambulance to resuscitate this guy. He he almost fell down on the floor. And I, I got invited to a screening at the writer's guild. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching the movie. And here's Walter, you know, getting out of his bowling gear and putting his stuff in his bowling bag. He's talking to Jeff Bridges. And he's like, dude, you got to understand, fighting a war in triple canopy jungle is a lot harder than fighting a war in the desert. And I'm like, wait a minute, those are my words. Right. And I, I turned behind me and at the exit, Joel was standing there looking at me and he's laughing and I was laughing. Now later, much later, I get a phone call from Lou. Lou's now moved back to Denton, Texas. He's bought a bar. Is there a bigger cliche than a Vietnam veteran buying a bar? Right. Is there? I don't think um, so. No, that's the pinnacle. I get this phone call and I come back from class and I push the button on the machine and it's like, hey, hey, X-Line, this is Lou. Listen, listen, I, I didn't see this movie when it came out, but I just read it, The Big Lebowski, and I think these guys owe us money. <laughs> so, so I always tell that story. That's the capper to my Barton Fink, Big Lebowski, Rug that tied the room together saga. That's what's up with the rug. Everyone wanted to know. Everyone wanted to know. Yeah. But it's not Walt, it's not Jeff Dowd. Jeff Dowd. Jeff Dowd was a foreign agent. He actually bought Blood Simple for foreign markets. And uh, he gave them money to re-edit so they could cut out some of the dead spots. I don't know, three minutes or six minutes. But he's quite the character. He had to be. With your life and his inspiration both together in The Dude, and now that character is larger than life, he had to be. Okay, so I want to know, what do you think are the core ingredients to a good story? What does it have to have? Yeah, I used to think it was all about plot. You had to have a very interesting plot. Then as I grew more sophisticated and much smarter, I thought, no, you got to have good characters. Because audiences got to care about the characters and what happens to them. If the plot's really good, the story's really good, I don't care about the characters. So what? I don't care. I don't care if they win or lose. One of the engaging elements is having the central character want something. And so now they're moving and they're working towards a goal. And this gives the central character action. So they're always trying to fight for something, to get something. Passive characters, generally speaking, are boring and uninteresting. Now you can have a passive character and make it work. If somebody else is active, the character in The Graduate is very passive. He's graduated from college. He has no clue what to do with the rest of his life. He could spend his whole summer drinking beer and working on his suntan. But Mrs. Robinson wants to have an affair with him, and he decides, okay, I have a, a sexual affair. And then, boom, you kick in the elements of the story. He meets the daughter. 
He wants to go out with the daughter, and then he wants to marry the daughter. And of course, the mother who's been having sex with him all summer is violently opposed. You will not go near her. You will never speak to her. So sometimes you have a passive character, and it can work. Forrest Gump is a passive character. Do you? You can argue he's kind of working to find Jenny, but I don't think he's working very hard to find Jenny. And they are reunified by coincidence multiple times throughout the story. He follows American culture through the establishment, and she follows American culture through the underground, the, the disestablishment. She's abused. She's taken away from her father. She's a hippie. She's an anti-war partisan, what do you call it, protester. She's an abused woman. She becomes a prostitute, presumably, and contracts uh, HIV. So they bookcase my history as a baby boomer. So it's right down the, the groove of my experience. And uh, a lot of things happen to him, and he does do a lot of things. But it's a very ingenious screenplay. It took three or four writers to figure it out. Finally, Leon Roth. Boom, came up with a solution to the screenplay and made it work. Yeah. So you have to have an interesting plot, but you have to have interesting characters. And you have a better chance if your character is working towards a goal. One of the examples that I use is Silence of the Lambs. In Silence of the Lambs, there's two scenes where she recalls her father. And to me, this tells you the story is about a girl, and she wants her father's respect. She wants to impress her father. He was a small-town cop, and he was killed off-duty when he tried to intervene in a criminal act. So he was taken away from her, but she wants his respect, and she wants to gain his respect. And she figures, if I become an FBI agent, my father will respect me, because that's the top cop in America. Okay, so what's the problem? Well, he's dead. And I always ask the class, okay, how do you impress your father if he's dead? So the class is always dumb because it's their first session and they don't know. I say, you come up with a surrogate father or two. One is uh, Jack Crawford and one is Hannibal Lecter. And they are both surrogate fathers. How do we know that she gains her respect? Well, at the end of the movie, Jack Crawford pins an FBI badge on her it says, your father would be very proud of you today. So, boom, there's two. She got her father's respect and she got Jack Starling's respect. Then there's a phone call for her, and it's Hannibal Lecter who tells her, Clarice, the world is a far more interesting place because you are in it. Well, that's more than respect. That's love. Now, love engages respect because... You have the respect of someone you love. You don't want to lose that. So I use that as an example of the ingenuity of screenwriting and how you create characters to substitute for things. I read a murder mystery once, and the murder occurred on page 55. Well, hello, that's 50 pages of trash, recycled paper. The story should begin with the murder, and then you start meeting the characters who are going to be affected by the murder and are going to solve the murder. Basically, I worked in Hollywood 20 years. I taught at USC 27 years. I think that's a pretty good resume. And um, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I graduated from 
OSU in 1969, I think that might encourage or discourage a lot of people because I make it clear, you know, it takes a lot. And that first year or two in New York, that was hard. It's really hard to leave your family and everything. For me, there wasn't much. Uh, my mother and father, my mother uh, was still alive. My father had died. Uh, there wasn't much holding me in Tulsa. And I thought, I'll go to New York City and see if I can strike gold. I never was incredibly successful, but I, I did lead a very interesting life. And I can tell people things that might help them if they're interested. Something that I have heard over and over through our conversation is um, a bit of a recurring theme of you giving back, you offering your life to whoever is in need. And so we heard that in you in need with the professor, and he kind of fulfilled a father role for you during that time. And then your willingness to share your life with the Cohen brothers and them needing that from you for that time. But you also went on to start um, some camps for youth kids um, who wanted to get into the film business and learn a little bit. I believe it was, is it right, the 12 to 18-year-old age range that you started film camps for these kids at Pepperdine? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? You've done your homework, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, I taught kids 12 through 18 the basics of uh, making movies. They had cameras, a tripod, eventually lights and a microphone. I split them up into groups of five to six people. The first project they had to make the first day of camp. I talked about the five basic shots, long shot, medium shot, close up, pan, and zoom. And then I said, okay, now you have to go out and make a movie in camera, no editing, and use those five shots in any order you want. And we'll look at them tomorrow and talk about them, and then we'll, we'll move on to your camp project. So this uh, turned out to be really smart because the kids couldn't, they, had, they were thrown into a position where they had to make a movie in an hour or two. After dinner, there was no time for it. So well, what are you, who are you listening to? What kind of music do you like? They had no time for that. It's like, so do you want to direct this one? And, the, you know, who's going to do the camera? They had to go in. So I just threw them in the swimming pool and said, okay, sink or swim. They had mentors that I hired from USC. And there were students or, or recent grads who would mentor them as they went through the process of writing a script and we'd have workshops in the morning and workshops in the afternoon that would show them successful and unsuccessful movies. You know, don't do this. Here's something that works. I think, though, in my experience, showing people failure is much better. They learn from failures because, wow, that stinks. What's so bad? Why is that so bad? It's much more engaging for them and, and uh, expressive. They, they get it. Oh, that's bad. So I found it exhausting to live on a college dorm on a three-inch plastic mattress. But I love the camaraderie, eating in the dorms. And uh, unfortunately, I got all the problems. All the problems came to me. Oh, no. But it was just uh, a wonderful experience. I had multiple students, campers who came to USC. At one point, I had six campers at USC. Some of them I'm still in touch with. Generally, I look upon that as, as a really wonderful time. But yes, I think giving back is something I can do right now. It's, you know, especially now you spend a lot of your life accumulating things. 
at my age, you're looking, well, what can I give back? Who can I give to? Who can I give? And I'd like to do a lot of things. I'd like to do things for homeless veterans. I'd like to do things for people who want to work in the movie business. It's just trying to find a venue. It's trying to find out who can I work with and what can I do? But I think that a lot of people, they were talking about, somebody was talking about working Habitat for Humanity. He said, I, I worked it one day. I was completely exhausted, but I felt so, so good. I went to Jimmy Carter and I talked to him about it. I said, my God, this is, this is really hard work, but I feel really good. And Jimmy Carter says, yeah, the more I work here, the better I feel. I want to thank our guest, Peter Exline, for sharing his time with us today. And we want to thank you, our audience, for tuning in to this episode of the Pokes Podcast. If you'd like to offer us feedback or propose ideas for future episodes, just send us an email, pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. That's pokespodcasts, all one word, P-O-K-E-S-P-O-D-C-A-S at okstate.edu. And with that, we'll pitch our final question. Peter, how do you see the arts and sciences making the world a better place? I think these are very, very wide open times. We've seen so many things. And the idea of the, the classic teacher standing there and lecturing and students taking notes and going back, that model is, is old and broken and maybe effective with a minority of students. But there has to be other ways of engaging students. I like making them solving problems. This is a time to search and explore new ways of teaching. 